0: And welcome to History of the Great War, episode 120. This week, thanks goes out to Peter and Stephen for becoming supporters of this podcast on Patreon, where they now gain access to special Patreon only episodes, much like the one shared on this very feed last week. I hope everybody enjoyed it, and you can find out more information at patreon.com/slash history of the Great War. Welcome to 1917, and we have finally arrived and we are going to jump right into the action. Today we'll be discussing the 10th and 11th and last Battles of the Isonzo. These would be the only two Italian attacks during 1917, and they would set the stage for what we'll be discussing during the next two episodes, the Battle of Caporetto. Much like on the Western Front, on the Italian Front, the Battles of 1917 would be on a new, much larger, and much more costly scale. On both sides of the line, the armies were bigger, better, and more prepared for the fighting than ever before, and this would set them up for what would be the last year of large battles on the Italian front. The fighting would continue into 1918, but 1917 would be the climax. It would be the year that the fate of the armies on the Isonzo was decided. So let's jump in. The preparations for 1917 had a good side and a bad side for the Italians. We will start with the good side. First, they simply had more men at the front than they had at any previous point in the war. The number of battalions in the army was increased from 700 to 860, bringing the total numbers up to something like 2 million. Much of this increase could then be focused on the Asanso, where the number of troops almost doubled. This was made possible due to a concerted effort to improve the defenses along other areas of the front like on the Asiago Plateau, which allowed more troops to be moved east. There was also a lot of effort put into the positions around Garizia and on the newly acquired areas on the Carso, which would allow Cadorna to more fully utilize his troops for an attack, since less would be needed in the rest of the line. This large increase in troops was accomplished by calling up both older and younger classes of recruits, and with this expansion, the drafts now included all of those aged 18 to 44. There was also a large increase in the number of artillery guns available at the front. Both of these items were of course very good news for the Italians, especially after they had lost so many men in 1916, so let's move on to the bad news, most of which revolved around the state of mind of men at the front and civilians back home. At the front, the men, aware of what was about to start, hit a new low point in morale. 1916 had been rough, and the gains had not exactly been impressive. All the men now had to look forward to was another year of the same. Back on the home front, there were protests by men drafted into the army, with some becoming belligerent and threatening army officers. This unruliness was coupled with a waning of public support for the war. The people on the Italian home front were suffering from both war exhaustion, caused by things such as rapid inflation, a stagnation in wages, and all the men missing at the front, and then also from the German U-boat campaign. Many of Germany's highest scoring U-boat commanders during the war called the Mediterranean their home. Their submarines would be the most effective here, because the British would always focus their anti-submarine efforts on the Atlantic and their home waters, which left precious few ships available to patrol the seas around Italy. The U-boats left many items quite scarce on Italian tables, like butter and sugar. This brought the war home in a way that in no way helped public morale. While Cadorna was aware of these issues, he was confident that they would not be a serious problem. He believed that his next attack would finally be the one to shift the war in the Italian favor, and to do this he had an ambitious plan of attack. Instead of just launching one effort on one area of the front, which had been his trend in 1916, Cadorna was reverting back closer to his idea of a massive strike against the entire front, which he had favored in 1915. The only difference this time was that instead of one massive attack, it would be a series of attacks, one right after another, to keep the Austrians off guard. In this case, the first attack would fall in the area around Gorizia, and to the north of it, where Capello's troops would attack, and then after a few days, and hopefully after the Austrians had committed their reserves to stop this attack, some of the guns would be moved south for another attack on the Carso. Cadorna was sure that this would work, and if Borivic did not take the bait and move his reserves north to Gorizia, then the Italians would simply capture a bunch of territory there, which was an acceptable outcome in and of itself. On the Austrian side, 1916 had been a rough year, not just on the Italian front. The empire had taken 1.7 million casualties during 1916, and these were simply irreplaceable. In the short term, they could increase the numbers on the Isonzo by robbing from other fronts, but there would be no way to keep up with the growth of the Italians. The men that were moved onto the front would bring Borjevic's numbers up to about 200,000, which was more than he had ever had, but it would still be less than what he faced. They were guaranteed to be outnumbered at least two to one for any attack, and probably far more. However, they had greatly increased the number of heavy artillery pieces that they had, with the number almost doubling over the course of the winter, which was of course a welcome change. These guns would be critical to helping to stem the Italian tide during the 10th battle alone, the Austrian artillery would fire over 2 million shells. This was a a very drastic and much required increase over the previous battles. Once again, Borjevic also had a reasonably good idea of what the Italians were planning to do with a large number of Italian deserters having come over to the Austrian lines in the weeks before the attack. The artillery fire would begin on May 12th, and it would be of greater intensity than ever before. The Italians were able to use more than 3,000 artillery pieces to throw an impressive number of shells at the Austrian lines, and then after two days of bombardments, the attacks would begin. The first would fall on Hill 383, to the north of Garizia, and it would occur at noon on the 14th. Here, three divisions of Italians would attack against one lone battalion, making it something absurd like 15 to 1 for an advantage. Even at such a huge disadvantage, the Austrians were still able to put up a fight and to inflict far more casualties than they suffered. Hill 383 had been able to hold out against almost two years of Italian attacks, and even here at the end, it still lived up to its bloody reputation. However, at some point, the sheer weight of numbers simply became too much, and the Austrians were pushed off the hill with very few defenders left to tell the tale. To the south, another Italian attack went forward, with a brigade crossing the Isonzo. I should probably remind everybody here that the Isonzo in this area was not very deep and not very fast, so fording across it was completely possible. Here the fighting was once again fierce, with better than half of the Italians becoming casualties, even though they had a huge numerical advantage. For these two attacks, they had gained some ground, but Capello had lost around 5,500 men. With this area of the front in so much danger, Borjevic was forced to pull several divisions from behind the line on the Carso and send them north. These would not arrive in time to assist in the early days of the attack, because Borjevic initially believed that the attacks here were just diversions. However, he quickly changed his mind and started moving troops to the north, but they would not arrive until May the 18th. Cadorna, ever the optimist, was not expecting the level of casualties that were currently happening. He believed that the artillery he had arrayed and the manpower he possessed would combine for a quick and easy victory. Even though things were not going perfectly, he was still ready, he was still ready to stop Capello's attacks, to get ready to move the guns south. Now, that he was in the thick of it though, Capello did not like this plan. He wanted to keep going. However, to do this, he would need to keep the guns that he had, but he told Cadorna that if he could keep the guns, then he could capture Mount Vadis and Mount Santo. Both of these would be hefty prizes, if they could be captured, that is. So Cadorna was convinced to let him keep the guns for a little while longer. With all of the information we have now, looking back into the past, this was not the correct course of action. The Borivik had just reduced the number of troops he had on the Carso and rushed them north. This was the perfect time to shift everything to the south. However, Capello and Cadorna did not know this, and Capello was pretty good at talking his commander over to his side. With the decision made, Capello continued his attacks, with more gains made, albeit at a high price. On the 18th, the attacks on Mount Vodis began, with several Italian divisions assaulting up the mountain. The last 250 meters of the assault were the hardest, being over completely open ground. The entire area was also inflated by Austrian machine guns, but on the good side, there was not much in the way of defenses, with no wire and very few intact trenches. If either of those had been present, they may have made the difference, but as it was, the Italians were able to capture the summit. This would be the limit of their advance though, as remnants of various Austrian units were able to keep them from going any further. The attack on Mount Santo would begin on the 20th, and here the situation was much the same as on Vodis. There was a massive artillery barrage, followed by a large number of Italian troops throwing themselves up the slopes, against a much smaller number of Austrians. However, the difference here would be the fact that the attack would be less successful, and while they were able to barely overrun the summit, they were then thrown back by one of those Austrian counterattacks. With Austrian reinforcements now arriving from the south and his own troops exhausted, Capello called a halt to the attack. Overall, the attacks here had been successful, if you measure success by territory captured, but the casualties for that territory were immense. However, the attacks by Capello had achieved another of his goals. He had caused Borjevic to move many of his troops north, which should set him up for the attacks by the Italians to the south on the Carso, and we now move to the south to see how that attack went. It would not be until the 23rd that the Southern Artillery fire would begin. The goal of this attack was to continue to widen and deepen the salient created by the attacks during the ninth battle, and for the most of the day of the 23rd, the artillery would continue to fire towards this goal. The artillery would fire about 100,000 shells every hour for the hours between 6am and 4pm, which is a million shells all told. If you can imagine, these shells were falling on solid rocks and concrete, which just amplified their sound and impact. Almost no matter where you were along the Austrian front, one was hitting reasonably close every minute or so. On the 24th, the attack went forward and then would do so again the next day. Over the course of these attacks, they were able to slowly but surely beat back the Austrians. It was a very slow process, though, and it took attack after attack to grind out the capture of three lines of trenches, which was a depth of about two kilometers. By the second day, these attacks had cost 25,000 men, and the attacks would continue for another two weeks until the 5th of June. The advances would be over on the 25th, though. And the intensity of the fighting slowly waned until June the 4th, at which point Borovic began shifting troops south to meet the attack. Once these arrived, he would then use them as forces to launch a counterattack, which would regain most of the ground that they had lost in the earlier attacks. Over the course of all this fighting on the Carso, the Italians lost over 50,000 men and the Austrians over 30,000. Hello, this is Matt from the Explorers Podcast. I want to invite you to join me on the voyages and journeys of the most famous explorers in the history of the world. At the Explorers Podcast, we plunge into jungles and deserts, across mighty oceans and frigid ice caps, over and to the top of great mountains, and even into outer space. These are the thrilling and captivating stories of Magellan, Shackleton, Lewis, and Clark, and so many other famous and not-so-famous adventurers from throughout history. So come give us a listen. We'd love to have you. Go to ExplorersPodcast.com or just look us up on your podcast app. That's the Explorers Podcast. Overall, for the fighting of the Tenth Battle, the Italians would suffer 159,000 casualties and the Austrians 80,000. This included around 25,000 prisoners for both sides, a worrying trend that would continue for both armies. Even though they had suffered a large number of casualties and had lost some territory, Mark Thompson does a good job of discussing why the defense during the Tenth Battle was impressive in his book, The White War. A greatly outnumbered and completely multi-ethnic Habsburg force comprising Dalmatians, Ruthians, German-Austrians, Hungarians, Romanians, Czechs, and Poles had had repulsed the biggest Italian attack yet mounted. Austrian artillery fire was still accurate and effective against regiments and sti- that still advanced slowly over difficult terrain in compact masses. The Austrians, by contrast, used highly mobile assault forces which proved their worth during counterattacks. End quote. Another bit of unrelated fighting would happen during the fighting on the Carso. Cadorna had been wanting to hit back at the Austrians on the Asiago basically since they launched their attacks in 1916, and he chose this moment to make it happen. The date for the attack was set for June the 20th, and to execute the attack, a brand new army was created, totaling about 300,000 men. However, intense fog would prevent the artillery from properly cutting the wire, and when the infantry went forward, in a torrential downpour no less, it was a disaster. The wire wasn't cut, the rain turned the area into a muddy quagmire, and the defenders were completely ready for the attack. Over the course of the action, the Italians would take another 25,000 casualties to gain precisely nothing. The military would have to call in favors with the Italian press to downplay the number of casualties suffered during all of these attacks, and they would also take the step of withholding the true numbers from the civilian government. Even with these failures, though, it did not stop them from wanting to launch more attacks, and Cadorna was already trying to figure out when he would start his next battle, the 11th. After the Tenth Battle, the Italian civilian government began to ratchet up the scrutiny on Cadorna. Even though he tried to keep the worst of the Italian failures from the government, enough information filtered back to them that they were growing concerned. It was still not reaching the point where these concerns and negative discussions resulted in actual action, though. Cadorna was still mostly unassailable, and he pretty much just ignored the political moves as much as possible. In his mind, he was frustrated with the politicians due to the fact that they were not taking the steps that he believed to be necessary to maintain discipline and obedience on the home front. This did not occupy too much of his time, though, because the most important item in front of him was to plan his next set of attacks. His goal was to launch another attack in August, since it would take that long to stockpile the resources that he believed to be necessary, which would include around 2 million artillery shells, and he would also use a new tactic in this attack as well. The fittest and best recruits had been selected and put into the 1st Assault Battalion. These men were then given intense and specialized training, and they were given better of everything – food, weapons, pay, you name it, they had it better than anybody else. They would be used in the attack as assault troops, and they would be called the Arditi, or the Daring Ones. This would be the debut of assault and infiltration tactics on the Italian front, although they had been used by other armies before, and would be used by other armies more effectively later. For the next attack, these assault troops would be joined by the largest set of Italian artillery so far. There would be 3,750 total guns against just 1,600 on the Austrian side. This would for the first time bring the Italian artillery roughly up to western front standards, at least in terms of density. The main effort would be on the Bainsizza Plateau to the north of Gorizia, and Capello would command the second army which would attack onto the plateau. This would require more of the river to be crossed as well as an attack against the Austrian positions near the river, The hope was that they could capture all of the plateau, and then Capello would be able to swing his attack to the north to attack Ptolemyn from the south. By capturing the plateau, it was also hoped that they would unlock attacks on both Mount Santo and Mount Saint-Gabriel. However, if the attacks on the Bancisa were not successful, then it would be pretty much impossible to attack these two objectives. Without the benefit of having Italians on the flanks of the mountains, the positions would simply be too strong. The Italians were going to do everything to make sure that they were able to take them, though, and they put in the work to map out almost every single Austrian position on the plateau to help make it happen. Facing these well-prepared, well-armed, and large Italian attacks would be just a single Austro-Hungarian division. It was not even a high-class division, but was instead one that had been recently moved in from the Eastern Front, while on that front they had been hit heavily by the Russians, and before that they had been hard hit by the Serbs in 1915, It had not been a good war for this Czech division, and their luck was not going to be any better against the Italians. When the Italians attacked, they fell upon this division, the Czech 21st Rifle Division, who were mostly just dazed and confused from the weeks of artillery that had hit them before the attack went forward. And while they were able to throw up some fire, at least on some areas of the front, in other areas they did not put up much resistance. For example, on the Italian 60th Division's front, they faced constant fire and resistance all day. However, on the 47th Division's front, resistance collapsed almost immediately. On this area of the front where the resistance collapsed, Italian engineers were already throwing pontoon bridges across the river in the early morning and were done by midday. For once, when these units got rolling, they were not quickly stopped. Over the next day, they continued forward up to 5 kilometers, pushing all the Austrian defenders, or at least those that were still alive, in front of them. They captured dozens of artillery pieces and 11,000 prisoners. In what was a complete coincidence, Emperor Karl was visiting the front when the attack was launched, and he, along with other members of Borovic's staff, were a moderating influence on Borovic, and convinced him to fall back instead of sending more troops out to try and hold the line. This went against Borivik's normal tendencies, but in my mind was the correct move. So early on the 24th, with the Italians preparing to continue their advance, the Austrians withdrew. By the time that the retreat was all over, most of the Bencise was in Italian hands, as well as Mount Santo. However, it had, this retreat had saved many troops, and since they had retreated voluntarily without the Italians knowing, they were not instantly pressed by attackers, allowing them to take a breath and prepare for the next effort. Another focal point for the attack was against Mount Saint-Gabriel. A very important position that if captured would unlock much of the area between Bains and Garizia. If the Austrians were able to hold on to it, though, the advances on the Banciso would not be able to affect the front on a wider scale, because they would be bottled up to the north. Here, the Italians arranged their largest guns, 420mm monstrosities. However, unlike when this type of gun was used against Liège in 1914, here it did not reduce the defenses on Saint-Gabriel enough. Therefore, when the Italians attacked, they found that there was simply nothing that they could do. Even after the artillery pounded on the Austrian lines for days, the defenders were still able to move out of their deep caverns and beat back the Italians. While everything wasn't going great on San Gabriel, everywhere else things were going great. But now, they were not prepared to capitalize. For once though, the problem wasn't physical. The men were there at the front, the enemy was in disarray, they had just executed their largest retreat of the war, the Italians now had a chance to continue their attack and now they had problems, both of which were mental mistakes by the leadership. The first problem was that the Italian reserves had been positioned too far to the south, with the theory being that since the attack was happening all along the front, they would be best positioned to move anywhere. In reality, this meant that the only place that they could move was the center, everywhere else was simply too far away. For our current discussions, they were just too far away from Benziza to quickly reinforce the army. The second problem was simple hesitation. As the Italians advanced and the Austrians retreated, the salient that was being created became deeper and deeper without necessarily becoming wider, due to the action on Mount Saint Gabriel. This concerned Capello and Cadorna, who now hesitated to continue their advance into this type of situation, they were just too concerned about their flanks. They may have been less hesitant if there was any sign of the Italian attacks to the south being more successful, but they looked to be complete failures a few days after they began. This hesitancy lasted for two days, during which they debated whether or not to continue the attack, but by the time they made up their minds to continue it, it wouldn't matter anymore, because it was too late. Two days after they paused the attack they started again, but gains were very scarce. The 11th battle would be over on September 19th, and it had been costly for both sides. The casualties were by far the most of any battle on the Asanza, with 166 for the Italians and 140 for the Austrians. Along with these numbers were around 6,000 prisoners that had been captured by the Austrians. I point this out because the defenders in World War I so rarely captured a significant number of attackers. As a whole, the Italians, while causing a lot of Austrian casualties and capturing more territory, had once again failed to accomplish their primary goal. As many men and as much artillery as they had, it still only resulted in an inconclusive result, where they captured some worthless ground. However, while the Italians had not achieved their goal, they had caused one very big, one very important thing to happen. With so many Austrian casualties, it was finally clear to the Germans that they had to do something about the Italian front. If they did nothing, then the Austrians would simply bleed to death. Therefore, a plan began to form for what would come to be the first and only combined Austrian and German effort against Italy. It would be a black day for Italy, and it would get its name from a small Italian village in the mountains. Caporetto